the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, everybody. So, Lindsay, we just came out of a huge special episode where we saw had to watch so many different movies and talk about so many different movies. Ooh, it yeah. was it was refreshing just to single in on one mm-hmm. or two movies for this episode, and that movie is 1993's The Fugitive. We're celebrating its 30th anniversary. It's pretty awesome. I grew up watching this movie. And it, it really has not lost any of its freshness, I mean, in, in 30 years. I don't know how a movie can do that, but the, this one is still just as enthralling as it ever was. I know we've said this before. It's like the kind of movie that they don't make anymore is sort mm. of like adult-themed drama-slash-action-adventure type movie. Yeah. You just don't see it too often unless it's like a superhero-type movie or somebody with special powers. This really, it's a solid cat-and-mouse-type movie, um, but there's also like subplots in it. And then you have two really great charismatic actors going toe-to-toe. And that's something else, too, that I don't we just don't see often. And I remember this is the movie that kind of like brought Tommy Lee Jones into the know. I mean, he'd been working forever, but like yeah. seeing him like choose scenery that we've seen him doing a ton of movies, but this I think was like the first movie where it's like, who is this guy? He's oh, amazing. For sure. I think, I mean, I was probably 12 when this movie came out and I didn't know who Tommy Lee Jones was. I hadn't really, if I had seen him in previous movies, it, it, it didn't register to me. I was too young, but certainly this movie, I don't want to say, I don't think he upstages Harrison Ford, but certainly toe-to-toe. And for a movie where they only share three scenes together, which is, which are fairly brief. So there's quite a bit to talk about with The Fugitive. Uh, one of the things that really surprised me once we started doing research for this movie was how similar in shooting this was to Die Hard, where they're kind of making stuff up on the fly. The main actor is like involved in some of the creative process and how laid back the director was about that sort of thing and everybody kind of working together and seemingly doing a lot of on the spot sort of things, but then using that process, but then making a really successful and really well-rounded movie. Um, Cause usually that didn't seem like it would be the case. It's like, yeah, we're kind of making up as we go along. And then later on you're like, yeah, it looks like it. Cause the movie's <laughs> pretty wobbly, but I think when, you look back on The Fugitive and, you know, think about it, half of the stuff, I mean, more than half, most of the memorable lines were made up on the spot. Yeah. When you go back and watch it, if anything, it just gives it a degree of more spontaneity. But I don't think that it looks like something that is wildly, like, spontaneous, yeah. you know. Um, but this movie needs something like that. And it's it's kind of great um, to, you know, to learn that that is actually what happened because you don't expect it on such a big budget movie. Yeah. So we'll get into, we'll talk a little bit about the writing process of this and how many drafts it went through and we'll move into production. A little bit of a backstory yeah, too on this movie. There's a little bit of a backstory yeah. and that it was based off of something else. And when we get into the production, we'll talk a little bit about the special effects 
because this is a movie that doesn't seemingly have a ton of special effects, but then I forgot all about how intense that the train wreck scene is. And to really find out that they really wrecked a real train. I mean, it just a lot of things in this movie again, I mean, you know, it was a different time and there's digital effects have come such a long way, Sure. but just the fact that like most of the big action set pieces in this uh, would just, all of it would have been done digitally now. And it looks really authentic and it's pretty intense. So, um, and there a lot went into it. So we'll get into that a little bit. So we'll, of course, we're going to get into the cast, editing, music. Music plays a big part in The Fugitive and a a movie with a great score that is so well done um, that you don't even realize how much it's motivating you to continue on with the story. First watch for when we started this episode, the music right away is like, man, this is just it's it's so uh, throttling and really drives the movie, Um, even just the opening with those awesome credits. When we do these movies from, you know, 30 years ago, um, when you compare them to now and you have the score going and you have action and this this is like an action thriller movie, but it's not overwhelming. And I don't feel like if I were in a theater watching The Fugitive that I would have my ears blasted out, that I would feel like the booms, you know, it's it's not that kind of a thing. It really just puts you in the driver's seat for this movie. And you really are with the main character. And it feels pretty intimate. The whole time. Yeah, yeah. I think that has a lot to do with uh, this being a character drama, but also being an action movie. Yeah. Well, after The Fugitive, we'll get into our picks of the week. This was a tough one for me, as it always is, and I kind of bounced around between what I was going to pick, but I did uh, ultimately end up choosing a 1986 movie that had Tommy Lee Jones in it and Linda Hamilton called Black Moon Rising, which is sort of a government meddling sci-fi slash futuristic type movie that feels very post-Terminator in terms of how it's stylized and shot. It's a pretty good movie. I enjoyed it. And we've got Tommy Lee Jones in a main role here. And you can already get the sense of his, the way he does those like smart alecky type jabs and his authoritative voice um, is on full display in in Black Moon Rising. That's awesome. I haven't seen this. I went with another 80s movie. I'm glad that you went the sci-fi route because I I was a little nervous about picking this one, but it was another movie directed by The Fugitive's director, Andrew Davis, from 1983 called The Final Terror. And it's a horror movie, but kind of a survivalist movie. I'd say maybe more survivalist than horror, but pretty well balanced in that way. I had never seen it before. Also starring Joe Pantiliano, who is in The Fugitive, too. We should just refer Which to him yeah, as Joey Pants. on fourth, we'll just refer to him as Joey Pants. Joey Pants, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, as always, we'll round things out with our Murray moment. But before we get into our first clip from The Fugitive, Lindsay, can you please give me uh, your interpretation? What happens in this movie? What's The Fugitive about, in your own words? Well, with a story that kicks into high gear within the first 10 minutes, The Fugitive follows a well-respected forthright Chicago doctor, Richard Kimball, who's been wrongfully accused of murdering his wife, Helen. Though the story contains some misdirections, one thing is for sure, that Richard is most certainly innocent. With the law enforcement convicting him um, even before his trial, Richard is sentenced to prison to await a death sentence. But while in transit from one prison to another, Richard is able to heroically escape the transport. With U.S. Marshals on his tail and armed with nothing left to lose, Richard embarks on a journey to prove his innocence by finding the man who truly did murder his wife. 
and with a tenacious deputy one step behind, the tables will turn as Richard leads the U.S. Marshals to uncover the secrets behind Helen's murder. The truth goes far deeper than he ever imagined in this nonstop thrill ride of intricate chases and action as Richard races to finally exonerate himself before all hope is lost. Thank you for that. I always appreciate your more in-depth analysis of a summary than just, uh, you know, he was framed and then, uh, you know, there's a manhunt. You know, there's like this thing, but I don't go too deep on it. I mean, no. this yeah. this plot really does get pretty... It gets intricate. Yeah, it does. It does. And I and I appreciate that about it, that it's um, not placating to the audience. Yeah. It's not uh, a boring plot. It's certainly, once it gets into the meat and potatoes of it, you're like, whoa. Yeah. All right. All right. This is way like, I mean, it's terrible. His wife was murdered, but holy crap, the reason behind it. Wow. Well, let's uh, go to a clip so we can come back and you can hear me once again talk about how much I don't like flashbacks. I don't know how. Uh, it's still kind of hazy, but somehow I grabbed him and, and I pushed him out of the bus. You're a brave man. You could both been killed. Yeah, I know. But yeah, he's my partner. He would have done the same for me. Excuse me, Sheriff. I'm Deputy United States Marshal Samuel Gerard. I'd like to talk uh, to you. I'll be with you in just a minute. Okay. One more time, just for the record. Uh, these three are dead. Yeah. And uh, this one. Well, everything happened so fast. I... No, I don't think you made it. Well, looks like you came a long way for nothing. Uh, with all due respect, uh, Sheriff Rollins, I'd like to recommend checkpoints on a 15-mile radius at I-57, I-24, and over here whoa, on whoa, Route whoa, 13. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Uh, the prisoners are all dead, and the only thing checkpoints are going to do is get a lot of good people frantic around here and flood my office with calls. Well, shit, Sheriff. I'd hate to see that happen, so I guess I'll take over your investigation. <laughs> on what authority? Governor of the state of Illinois, United States Marshal's Office, 5th District, Northern Illinois. All right, fine. Uh, you want jurisdiction over this mess? You got it. Okay, boys, gather around here and listen up. Uh, we're shutting it down. Wyatt Earp's here to mop up. Sheriff, before you go, we're going to need Sam. Oh, wow, gee whiz, look here. You know, we're always fascinated when we find leg irons with no legs in them. Who the hell are the keys, sir? Me. Where are those keys at? I don't know. Care to revise your statement, sir? What? Do you want to change your bullshit story, sir? He might have got out. He might have got out. What the hell is this? A minute ago, you're telling me he's part of the wreckage, right and now he might have got out? Fire truck. Listen up, ladies and gentlemen. Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground, barring injury, is four miles an hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence, warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or dog house in that area. Checkpoints go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Dr. Richard Kimball. Go get him. Now, it's been 30 years since The Fugitive came out, and this movie is based off of a TV show that came out 30 years prior to it. This show came out in 1963. It was a hit show. It went for four seasons. At the time, it seemed crazy for them to make a movie off of a show that was 30 years old. No one, re you know, the studio was like this. It hadn't really been done. They didn't, they weren't a fan of doing it. You can kind of understand that, you know, but there weren't as many shows back then. And so, and there was, the show was heavily syndicated. 
uh, The Fugitive in the 80s was on PBS all the time. And back then, PBS wasn't what it is now. So they would play, they would have these like brackets of showtimes where they would do like old shows from the like late 50s, early 60s. And they'd have like Leave it the Beaver, The Fugitive, Dark Shadows. Those kind of shows weren't heavily syndicated, as well as other shows on other channels like gilligan's island and stuff and this is before there was like the retro channels i mean Mm -hmm. they were just you know they were like hey we have syndication rights let's play these old shows and they're like 50 minutes long yeah and and a season was 30 episodes you know way different than now i I did not get to re i wanted to revisit the fugitive because it is streaming the tv show and I didn't get to watch any of it. But as a kid, I loved it, but I haven't seen it since then. The TV show is more about him getting into adventures. Like, the entire series, he's on the run. But because he's a doctor, you know, he he's hiding out on a farm or something. And, you know, he ends up helping someone here. He ends, You know, it's all about him being, like, this good Samaritan who's also, like, on... Who's being hunted by... the And that's how the movie is, too. You know, being hunted by Tommy Lee Jones, Marshall, who's, like, after him through... The entire series and their relationship sort of like cutting back and forth between the hunt and the hunted and still same kind of character names we still have richard kimball is the fugitive and um in this case in the movie it's deputy gerard and in i think the tv show he was a police lieutenant that was on on his case and Kind of the same setup, a doctor who's wrongfully accused of murdering his wife. And while in transport, Kimball does get away. And this begins his uh, cross-country search for the real killer, this one-armed man. That is the same thing that we see in the movie. And before we get into the development of the movie script, there is a little bit of backstory and a little bit of inspiration where the TV show came from and what influenced the 1993 movie that we're going to talk about. The two main things are the true story, um, kind of behind The Fugitive, and I I would say that that there's only a limited part of the true story that is what we know as The Fugitive and even the TV series. In 1954, there was um, a couple, uh, Marilyn and Sam Shepard. Sam Shepard was a doctor, and he was sentenced to death for the rape and murder of his wife. And in hindsight, it's pretty well understood that the police that were involved in the media, it became a frenzy. And he was basically convicted before he ever went on trial, which is what happens in The Fugitive. And we could turn into a true crime podcast if we start talking about this story and go down this road. But it really is a fascinating story. There are some things that have been taken from the story. Instead of, uh, say, a one-armed man, like what we see in the movie, it was a bushy-haired man that Sam Shepard said that he fought with and fought him off multiple times and that that was the person who attacked his wife. So the original inspiration came from something that actually happened. And it's also been said that there is some inspiration that came from the Victor Hugo story of Les Miserables, that a convicted ex-con is being chased by a very morally bound investigator hellbent on catching this perp. It's been years since I have seen this musical, but there is a sewer chase scene that semi-mimics one in The Fugitive, so I can understand how there has been some inspiration. And to jump from that TV series created by Roy Huggins, they did attempt to make the TV show into a movie in the late 80s, but trying to condense 120 episodes into a cohesive movie just proved to be much more challenging than uh, anyone was prepared for at the time. And I get why the idea of like 
taking this television series and turning it into a movie was so compelling because you do have this very unique story of like a high profile doctor who like murders his wife. I mean, that's just stuff that doesn't happen. You know, we don't even in today's headlines that I mean, would he still be huge, his wife, but I mean that, but seeing it yes. in a headline yes. form, <laughs> you know, and I also, you know, like the idea that this movie isn't taken from the stance of the media's view of this, like pretty much just focusing all our energy, seeing the Richard Kimball character and then his perpetrators. And, you know, we start learning about the fact that he didn't kill his wife. And I definitely think that the movie immediately lets us in on the fact that he didn't kill his wife. You know, this isn't like some mystery, like, wait, did he kill her? We find out, like, we start doubting him. Like, you're on board with the Richard Kimball character from the get-go. But there are doubts from just about everybody in the beginning um, until, like, you know, he has this fierce passion to redeem himself and show that he was framed. But the trajectory that the story would take for a movie wasn't as clear as one might expect because The Fugitive, the 93 movie, is... I mean, pretty like straightforward, but they add in a whole other subplot that uh, was not really included, which is, I think, pretty awesome and, and, and a great subplot. But, you know, original drafts just weren't working. I think there was something like nine writers had attempted making a screenplay for this. There were something like 25 different screenplays and just plots weren't working. Like Deputy Gerard, who is Tommy Lee Jones, there was one plot line where he was actually the person who hired the one-armed man to kill Richard because uh, Richard had messed up an operation with Gerard's wife. And I mean, like, it's just ludicrous. It's things that don't really work. Um, So producer Arnold Coppelson had tried to develop the script for at least five years, and a script just wasn't coming to fruition. But Warner Brothers had already put in $2 million into trying to make this work, but they were ready to shelve the project at this point. So that's when uh, we have two writers get involved that are credited for the story of what we know as The Fugitive now, and that's David Toohey and Jeb Stewart, who we've talked about Jeb Stewart from Die Hard. It's kind of, I can't decide if there was some drama that we just don't know about that I haven't, I don't know, I don't know if you unearthed anything, Justin, but... The only thing I've been able to siphon out of all of this from director Andrew Davis is that what was taken from the original script from David Toohey was basically all of the action sequences. The Toohey brought the dam sequence, the train crash, the bulletproof glass scene at City Hall where Gerard like tries to kill Richard Kimball. Um, but that that was all that was taken from the original script. But it was Jeb Stewart who came in and was the guy on set helping rewrite uh, different scenes for when they were actually already in production. Yeah, and it sounds like the Jeb Stewart rewrite is the one that enticed Harrison Ford to come on board. But it did it. But it sounded like from interviews with Harrison Ford that he liked the Jeb Stewart version in a way but was like man this needs a lot more work to it so it seemed like their variations of the script finally got to a place where they were like getting serious interest from cast and producers and ford said that when he was approached with this script he had already seen different versions of this like three or four times but it hadn't really 
enticed him until this new version, which was the best one that he'd seen so far. And even though Warner Brothers didn't want Harrison Ford, he wasn't their first choice to play Richard Kimball. Producer Arnold Coppelson said that he had always envisioned Ford for this role. We'll get into more of of that when we talk about the cast. Um, But when Ford is approached with this, um, he said, I'd like to do it, but it really needs work. So with Harrison Ford on board, I mean, you've got a movie that is already $2 million, kind of in the hole, but you've got Harrison Ford. Okay, this is a positive move forward, but we need to find a director. Initially, and this kind of would have been really interesting, the the first person that I read, at least, uh, that was thought about was Walter Hill, um, who at that point had done, I mean, he'd done a lot of films, but probably like 48 Hours was the most recent big thing. 48 Hours was huge at that point, and he had a longstanding career. Um, but he was originally on board and left the project. Harrison Ford saw Under Siege and thought, this is actually the vibe. This is the action that we need for The Fugitive. So he was the one that brought up Andrew Davis. And we're Andrew Davis fans here. You know, I'm a big fan of Above the Law and Under Siege, you both are. directed <laughs> by Andrew Davis. Yeah. And he does have a particular style that is, I think, kind of unique and Also, he handles action, I think, in a little more pristine way than Walter Hill does. Walter Hill, I love Walter Hill, but he's more of a down and dirty. But I could easily see a Walter Hill version of The Fugitive that's like a little more um, gritty gritty and like sleazy versus this bigger production that we have. I feel like he could drag if it was Walter Hill. And Andrew Davis like does a... You know, he, you know, Under Siege is like basically Die Hard on a ship, but it is slick, more of like how Die Hard is versus a grittier, like 80s, low budgety action type movie. And I think he was a great choice for this because he does seem like the kind of director who can handle somebody like Seagal, you know, so I'm sure like it was a walk in a park working with somebody like Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. And, you know, he had just worked with Tommy Lee Jones too in Under Siege. And so they actually... They had done two films together, The mm-hmm. Package and Under Siege. So they had already a pretty good friendship going. Yeah, he is one of those directors where, like, if his name is on the movie, I'll give it a look. And I, it really, he doesn't have any movies that I don't think disappoint. And his last film, Kevin Costner, The Guardian, which is, uh, oh, really? for what the movie is, it's, like, also really solid, like, big budget. Yeah. He does drama action. The danger in his movies seems more real than it does in, like, action movies where uh, Mission Impossible, where you always know, like, Tom Cruise is not going to get really, like, injured or whatever. It's The danger is more fun versus, like, in Andrew Davis movies, I feel like the danger is, like, real, but then he can also have fun with the movie at the same time. It's more of a perilous aspect where you think, oh, what's going to happen actually to this main character? And I do like, and I I think The Fugitive is the best movie because I do think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that he's got these two charismatic actors like going head to head. And I really love the way that they do the cross cutting in this movie. I think, and that's a lot to his credit is that knowing that, hey, we've got this really great, character who's chasing Harrison Ford let's not waste it with all these like meetups let's have them only face to face in a few scenes you always feel like they're in scenes together even though they're not it's like they're in different parts of the city and 
you know, we'll have scenes where we're just on Tommy Lee Jones for a good while. And he's like, you know, questioning people and on the trail. I love the way that it goes back and forth. Like, I always feel like I'm involved in both sides of the story. And it's interesting when you say that the fugitive is coming from two different points of view. Um, I'm thinking back to our last episode, the the blink from hell, where we chose movies that were from the victim's standpoint, like the 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 person who the negative action was happening to. And in the fugitive, it's kind of the same thing too, that the story's being told from the victim's standpoint, but also the law enforcement who eventually their story connects with the victim, in this case, Richard Kimball, and it's not being told from the aggressor's point of view. And Harrison Ford said that one of the reasons that this story spoke to him, that he chooses movies based on the idea of of wanting an audience to walk away with a, a sense of humanity, that he doesn't ever want the viewer to walk away feeling bad, um, that there has to be, not has to be, but a sense of positivity in a way, and that there's a sense of responsibility to other human beings. And man, like The Fugitive is that. It I don't want to say it's like a positive, you know, uplifting yeah. movie. It's not. But it, it is a story that is about redemption in a, in a way of, of feeling vindicated or that you finally, like there's a, a huge release at the end when, I mean, it's kind of no surprise if, if you've seen The Fugitive or if you haven't. I mean, Richard Kimball does get exonerated at the end yeah. of the film, um, which is what you, you spend the whole movie with this character knowing that he's innocent and you you're you're with him for the whole ride and you you need that release at the end and so there is a degree of positivity to it when i do love that we get to settle in with richard kimball in the beginning like we don't see tommy lee jones for like yeah you know 12 to 15 minutes and so we're settling in on the story and we're like rooting for richard you know he has this opportunity to escape but then he still saves somebody he risks his life to save somebody so it's set up you know we're with him we're like this is a good guy and so we're all wrapped up in that world it's this exciting crash and everything and then enter the tommy lee jones character and to me a lot of ways it's it's similar to demi's silence of lambs where you know we're settling into clarice and then pow we get this very interesting mm-hmm. enigmatic character mm-hmm who were like, whoa, where did this guy come from? And now we're following him for a little while and what, where he's coming from. And then we get this great interplay between the two where it's like they're both cunning and they're both smart. And, you know, who's going to outsmart the other person? Even their relationship at the end, whenever they you, you see a softness to Tommy Lee Jones' character yeah. where Gerard is, uh, you know, takes the cuffs off of him and... And also, you know, there is the uh, bookend of him saying, you know, I didn't kill my wife. And he says, I don't care. And then later when he goes, I didn't kill my wife. And you hear Gerard say, I know that that seems really effective, you know, and I I think it's great that they have is rough and tumble is the Tommy Lee Jones character is. And as much as he seems like devoid of feelings, which I think is intentional, I do like that they have those bookends of like he's coming to the realization that, you know, he, he knows that this has been a hard journey for Harrison Ford's character. Like he knows that to, to get away from him, like you really have to like go through some shit and yeah. And that yeah. he's went through all that and come out on the other end. And then he's earned Tommy Lee Jones's character's respect. I feel like 
if Richard Kimball would have broken down in that moment when he says, I know, you know, you didn't kill your wife, it would have com- been completely understandable yeah. if he just would have like crumbled into a puddle of tears and because I, of all of the crap that he's that, gone through. And what I love about these kind of movies, a Hollywood movie in general, because a Hollywood movie in general is not going to want to leave you with a bleak outcome. And I love the way that they wrap this movie up with the, they're in the squad car together and he takes the shackles off his arms and he says, oh, I thought you didn't care. You know, Tommy Lee Jones laughing. He's like, I oh, don't tell anybody. And they're, it's almost like it's kind of playful. this, this playful yeah. moment. I mean, they've just, it's been all this craziness that's happened. And you just all, tried to you know, he's, freaking kill me one he time. He tried to kill him and he, he, you know, Harrison Ford almost died like three times. By I jumped doing, off a dam yeah. to get rid of you. And they just end on this sort of playful thing in the camp, you know, and we see like the wide shot of like the cop car moving out and everything. Yeah. And I love, to, to me, that's like a in the same way again that like die hard set the example of like you can have this like intense action and all this stuff but then you can end on a playful note and the fugitive takes its time i mean i don't find that to be a slow movie by any means but like we spend a lot of time i mean there's scenes where it's just like tommy lee jones is like looking out the window and he's thinking (laughs) and you're like you know you're you they hang with them and there's times where you know they they'll spend a full minute showing Harrison Ford like floating in the water and he's like trying to get out onto the bank. They they let the scene play out. They take you on this whole huge manhunt journey plus him finding out all the conspiracy that was going on with the with his friend who who was also a doctor in like the pharmacy company. Like all this is revealed in a 2-hour movie. <laughs> you know that has like a really great opening, a really great ending. That can be done. You can make a 2-hour movie, have it be entertaining have it have a lot of information and have scenes like breathe. I do like that The Fugitive is half a chase movie and then it turns into solving a mystery. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that it's that cut and dry. Like um, like Boogie Nights to me is two movies. It's the first is a porno and then it's all drugs, drugs and crime. And it seems like a very hard cut. Like once we get to a certain decade in Boogie Nights, it completely changes. And I'm not saying I have a problem with it. It's just this movie is way more seamless in that way. It just kind of transitions into that. And I think I said this earlier that it turns into Deputy, you know, Gerard has been chasing Richard Kimball this entire time. But then it turns into Kimball's leading the yeah. U.S. Marshals and Gerard back towards the truth of what happened to his wife. And I can't help but not mention that the majority of this cat and mouse that's going on between Gerard and Kimball all takes place in the Chicago setting. And there's been tons of movies that have been filmed in Chicago. Um, but And I mentioned this when I did uh, my Above the Law for my pick of the week. Andrew Davis is from Chicago, and he's been able to shoot, I'd say, like three or four of his movies in Chicago. And he really does seem like a director that's not just going for the tourist shots and also filming it in March to where it looks very cold when you see the actors with their coats and their you know you see their breath in the air it feels very much like being in the Midwest during the uh, late winter season and it seems really harmonious that Andrew Davis has set a lot of his movies in Chicago because Harrison Ford grew up in Chicago and he was actually the one that suggested that they do the movie in Chicago and initially it was kind of thought, ah, it might be a little too cold to shoot it there. And Davis was kind of taken off guard like, oh, really? Okay, great. We both understand, you know, the city and we both think that it would be a great gritty atmosphere for it. And, 
you know, if you know anything about Chicago, a lot of this movie was shot either downtown or on the south side, which is a little bit grittier than the rest of the city. But comparing Chicago to, say, L.A. or New York, um, it just has something that's so particular. The, The cityscape, you've got a body of water, you've got trains, and, you know, you do have... I mean, even just, I, I don't know how many times I've seen, this might be too too particular to people who know Chicago, but like Lower Wacker Drive, which is in the city, but it's like so prominent, like Batman movies, like it, it's very uh, dark and kind of like the underbelly. And there's only one part, I think, of, of The Fugitive that's there, but it, it feels like that. And whether it is using the grittiness that can exist in Chicago or the giant, you know, kind of atmospheric aerial shots that Andrew Davis gives the city and for Richard Kimball to feel kind of like lost and alone and trying to make his way, um, trying to, to, to solve what he's uh, trying to do throughout the whole movie. Like Chicago is used so well. Um, and I can't think of another movie that does it just does the city as much justice um, as uh, as the fugitive. Yeah, and a, and a particularly Chicago scene, uh, the St. Patrick's Day Parade is really huge in Chicago. They dye the the river green, yeah. which is kind of wild. You know, they wanted to capture that, but the city was like, well, we can't block off streets, and we, there wasn't enough budget to like recreate a, the Chicago Parade. So the city was like, you can shoot while the parade's going on. We just can't like, you know, stop anything. And you have to shoot while it's going. Yeah. Shoot while it's going. They got down there and got handheld and run and gun. And, you know, when Tommy Lee Jones is popping his head up, he's like jumping over the crowd, looking around. It all feels very uh, frantic. And it feels like there really is a parade going on because it was, it, it actually does make the scene that much more realistic and that he, and what a great way for him to hide, you know, put on the the hat and like disappear into the crowd a really great way to um legitimately escape so that it's like realistic and great use of you know real people a real event taking place Andrew Davis worked for Haxel Wexler who is a really renowned cinematographer he shot one floor of the cuckoo's nest he, there's actually this like incredible documentary about him in his work and how he said a lot of times like he could have just directed the movie better than the directors that he was working with. He's a cantankerous, (laughs) cantankerous person, but he did direct a movie called Medium Cool, which came out in the 60s that Andrew Davis worked on. And they did a similar thing where they had a script and everything, but there was a protest type situation going on. And so the actors knew their lines, but they were like, we're going to go out there and people don't know that this is part of a movie that's happening. And so we'll just kind of, you know, get what we can get. And, you know, if someone talks to you, then just improv it or whatever, like run around people. And so he said that's kind of what he, part of partially getting the idea of his experience on that movie. It's like, we can do this, you know, even though it's like this big, huge movie with Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones, we're just going to go down to the parade and get some footage of them like running around people. And that Harrison Ford wasn't discovered for hours. I mean, I think they shot this for a good four hours throughout throughout the parade. And it's 21 degrees outside. I mean, it's not comfortable out there. And you're Harrison Ford trying to blend in with a crowd. It's kind of awesome that it worked and, for and so long. And I can long. only imagine that they must have been used. I mean, I'm, I'm, I didn't hear it in the commentary. I'm assuming they used some sort of like smaller camera, maybe. I mean, because it seems like, but there but were then handhelds, again, and then there was a yeah. steady cam being used, which is not small. Yeah. But I mean, 
it was but but it, it seems like obvious. it would stick out more because nowadays like everybody's filming something but back then it would be like whoa that guy's got a big professional looking camera but how wild that would be to be like wait a minute is that harrison ford yeah. what's happening what's even funnier was that i mean just coincidentally the movie blink was also shooting at the exact same time using the parade as well so there were two movies that were using the parade but i guess when you're in a parade situation there is a lot of chaos yeah. and a lot of noise and there's going to be news cameras down there there's going to be people that are out but I, I can't help but think that maybe Harrison Ford could blend in but the moment that you notice him it seems like that might spread like holy shit that's Harrison and for Ford. those uh for those listeners out there that are creative at doing uh editing movie mashups for YouTube that would be a great thing taking the parade scene yeah. from Blink and from Fugitive and <laughs> yes. like making it look like the actors see each other down there I think the crews did run into each other but yeah. there, there weren't issues well, not all of the movie was shot in Chicago, and two of the really most well-known scenes from this movie were actually shot elsewhere, and that is the dam sequence, and that's the train wreck sequence, which, starting off with the train wreck sequence, you know, we've talked a lot about using miniatures and stuff, like in Die Hard and Terminator, where they would take, they're going to blow up a house or a truck, and so they basically make a miniature model of it, and then they make it look like they're blowing up something bigger. You would think that's what they would do. They're going to crash a train into a bus, but they were like, we're really going to crash this train. Uh, we're going to get one take. We're going to set up 27 cameras. One take. One take. That's it. They can't redo this. What? And he said, you know, they did have a thing where it was going to derail the train so that it was safe. And they had an idea from the stunt crew and the special effects crew, like we're going to try to guide it. The tr this derail train as well as we can, but things are going to crash and we're just going to set up again, a ton of cameras. And then whatever we get, we get, and hopefully it works. And they were all pretty satisfied. Anytime I go back and watch a movie from the nineties, I haven't seen the while I'm like waiting for the blue screen to look really terrible. And mm -hmm. man, this looks better than most any crash that you would see in like a modern movie or television series right now. And even the part where Harrison Ford's jumping off of the train. I mean, that is not actually, he's not actually jumping yeah. off of a train. That process is called uh, intervision. And it, it is basically the same thing. Like he's on a soundstage and this is projected behind him. But even that, it doesn't look bad. Yeah. It looks, it looks friggin' great. Um, and of course, this would be done digitally now. But Everything, like thinking about this being a train, the engine I think was taken out of, of the actual train and it was, you know, it was being pushed, but it was being pushed at 35 miles an hour. That is not slow. The logs that come flying off of the train, those are actually like real size logs. Like everything is real, the entire crash, everything. And it was engineered to happen at specific times. Explosions that happened, those were rigged and set. Yeah. But I mean, everything looks so intentional and to just think about it being one take dude you got one take and all of this is hypothetical that it's going to work when you have 27 cameras set up you really better hope that I, I can't remember how many cameras davis said were scrapped or that they couldn't use but i mean 27 seems pretty good like you're gonna you're gonna get yeah. all aspects of it but it really is incredible that it came out as well as it did and one million dollars is nothing really to sneeze at but to get that good a footage of a crash sequence that's not three seconds long. It and, takes a while. You know, I, I've seen many, many times in like other movies where 
they're obviously setting up multiple cameras and something explodes. They'll show like three shots yeah. of it from different angles. And it's just kind of like you're seeing the same thing, but this one actually looks more uh, intricate in that when they cut to something, you're it doesn't just feel like you're seeing the same sequence redone. It's It's staged really, really well and feels very intense. And not just with Harrison Ford jumping out of the bus as the train hits it, the part that gets me the most with Richard Kimball is him running away from the accident in leg shackles. Yeah. That is like pulse pounding. How the hell is he going to make it out of this situation? It's such a good sequence that doesn't get robbed on time, isn't too short. It's just long enough to make an impact. And what I like a lot about this movie is that it doesn't feel like we're just bombarded with action sequences. We we get this crash and then we get one other big sequence, which is the damn sequence. And then after that, you know, he he's he's being chased, but we're not we're not going to the next thing where this is where he's hanging off of a bridge. And then yeah. this next one yeah. where a helicopter is involved in, you know, this kind of business. The rest of the movie is more about the relationship between Gerard and Harrison Ford trying to clear his name. But I do I, then that I like I like that we get the action sequences out of the way in the beginning. And mm-hmm. there's only two. And one of them is more of like the setup of how he gets out. And then the second one is like, he'll do anything to clear his name. This dude will jump off like a 250 foot (laughs) dam into the water. And even though they used a dummy for the Harrison Ford. Like six dummies. Yeah, they used like six different dummies that they destroyed. Still looks pretty good. And, you know, uh, Harrison Ford said that he did have like some sort of like safety harness rig so that he could comfortably stand at the very edge of like a real dam. I think, didn't they they put that whole thing on a flatbed truck, didn't they? And they backed it up to the dam? They did do that for some of the background stuff, but then other stuff like where they're running the through the tunnels. Yeah, in they the shot sewer. in yeah. the studio. Yeah, yeah. The the sewer sequences were in the studio, but the the production put this tunnel on the bed of a flatbed truck, but that they backed it up to where the drop off for the dam is is just whether you have a harness on or not, dude. That's a little pulse pounding. And it's it's pretty thrilling. I remember from the trailer when this movie was being promoted. It's like this is the big scene, you know. Yeah. It's like, but it, it's good because it again it shows like this guy's willing to risk his life to clear his name. It's not just running from prison, you know, like, man, he is determined and who would go through all this if they weren't serious about trying to clear their name. Yeah. And the Tommy Lee Jones character, he's seen, he's seen it all. He's been doing this for everybody. <laughs> he's just like, man, this dude just jumped. He just did a Peter Pan yeah, off of this dam. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> but again, another great sequence, uh, even though they're using dummies uh, instead of a stunt man falling into the water. Still looks really good. You know, this isn't uh, necessarily a stunt sequence or special effects, but there's another chase sequence that takes place in City Hall where Tommy Lee Jones is chasing Harrison Ford down a set of stairs. And if you watch this scene, poor Harrison Ford, I feel like we talked about this in Raiders of the Lost Ark. This guy gets messed up on every single movie where he has action sequences. And in something like, uh, I think he injured his knee during... The train sequence and also he really messed it up after they did this chase down the stairs yeah and you see him running down the stairs totally fine and he's got a limp and that's a real limp yeah from what i understand he had to get the acl surgery after filming the fugitive which uh as far as i know it's like a pretty excruciating surgery to have to go through the poor guy gets beat up on every movie 
And Harrison Ford not only gave a lot of himself up physically for this movie, but creatively as well. Like, for instance, with this City Hall scene, it is just one of numerous examples of how much improv or lines that were made up, like when Kimball's limping away from Deputy Gerard. In order to stop Gerard from chasing him, you know, he waves down a, a police officer and he's like, officer, officer, there's a man with a blue top coat w- waving a gun and a woman. And it and it sounds so legit in the scene, but Ford just made that up when they were filming, which I, I mean, when you're a skilled actor, sure, uh, that you know, the, gems like this happen every now and again in movies. But for The Fugitive, I'm kind of like blown away by how much Andrew Davis and all of the cast said, oh, yeah, I just made that up on the spot. Even going back to when Gerard and Kimball are facing off in the tunnel right before he jumps off the dam, Harrison Ford said that there was like three pages of dialogue originally and them going back and forth about how arguing the case and how he didn't kill his wife. And after they worked through that scene and went through it, They just both said to each other, you know, all of this doesn't matter. No one wants to see this. And it boiled down to one of the most iconic moments in the movie where Kimball says, I didn't kill my wife. And Gerard says, I don't care. That's what three pages boils down to. And it's beautiful. Like you said earlier, we circle back to that at the end. And it's a perfect bookend for their relationship for characters that only have three scenes together. Yeah, I love the idea that they're, why don't we simplify this? You know, because sometimes movies can get, I think, like overly exposition-y, you know, for no reason other than trying to get out, like, plot story, and we don't always need that. We're, We're following this guy around. We're seeing his actual struggle and pain through the movie. And maybe with a movie like this that is so fast paced, I don't know if they were even thinking that the degree of spontaneity was really important for a movie like this. I think it just came out of them going, we can make this scene better and we can come up with dialogue that's better on the spot. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones, it seems like every time that one of his lines that someone can bark back at you that he said he made it up just that day. Well, there's so much uh, of that that happens in this movie, and we'll we'll talk more about that. Let's take a little break, and then we'll come back. We'll talk about the cast, and then we'll get into the reception, the release, the music, and the sequel that came out a few years after. All right. Open joint ventures between academic medicine and pharmaceutical industry, Richard. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm in the middle of this speech. You almost got away with it, didn't you? I know all about it. I can prove it. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend Richard Kimball doesn't feel well, obviously. So if you just go on with your dessert and coffee, Richard, do you mind to step aside and let's talk? Okay. So uh, I'll be back in just a second. You changed the samples, didn't you, huh? You switched the samples after Lentz died. Let's stay stay calm, people. After Lentz died, you were the only one who had the access. You switched the samples and the pathology reports. Did you kill Lentz, too, huh? Can we get some security huh? in here, please? Did you? 
He falsified his research so that our DU-90 could be approved and Devlin McGregor could give you Provasic. All right, it's all over, folks. Let's just uh, stay calm. So I was sort of half joking about this, about how much I hate flashbacks. And, <laughs> and that, that wasn't a lie. I do hate flashbacks do. in movies. There's been a few movies I thought have done it well. This movie I don't think is on that list. It's the only thing about this movie that I wish was better. And it's not necessarily the fact that there are flashbacks, but the way that they're staged where they do that, it sort of looks like softer. It don't, I mean, it feels more like TV movie the way they do it. But I understand why... They do it because it's a quick way to not have to show the relationship between him and his wife and do this whole thing where they come home and she gets killed. And we, you know, I mean, like we just hear the flashbacks and we see them. And also the the parts that are flashbacks, there's there's a foggy memory part of like the assault. But then there's where the movie looks non flashbacky, where it is a yes, flashback. It is a flashback. And we're getting the information about his wife. Yeah. Working with the hospital. And yeah, I don't mind it. And so, you know, we'll kick off the cast talk with Celia Ward, who plays Mrs. Kimball. What you were saying, the later flashbacks, I think, work. It's I think it's just like the opening in flashbacks that always uh, is never really a thing for me. It's like, the assault. That, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's good the way it's cut. It's like, you know, we. I also don't want to see this like really gross murder to kick off the movie. You see movements and stuff like that in the soft flashback scene and then her doing the voice that condemns oh. the 911 call where she says... Where she's saying, Richard, like, I know yeah. you're in the house. He's, He's trying, trying to, to kill, kill me. me. But it so just sounds awful. like she's saying Richard's trying to kill me. Yeah, There is one part within, and I understand what you're saying, that it has that soft kind of USA made-for-TV movie kind of flashback um, essence to it. But there is one scene in in the flashback sequences um that's actually one of my favorite parts in the movie and it's when richard flashes back to like a very very brief moment when it's implied that they're you know going to have sex or something and they kiss very passionately and that they it's it's established that that helen and richard have a good marriage and it's like a very passionate kiss and then it's like a violent flash to him trying to resuscitate her that's one of my favorite parts in the whole movie because it every single time is like a stab right to the gut. And Celia Ward was a great choice, someone who has a lot of screen presence who we need to establish quickly. And again, like you said, in these scenes, like have them seem passionate because this whole thing, him going through all this and, you know, torturing himself through jumping off dams and running through the woods and hurting him, his knee is all so that he can clear his name, but more importantly, catch this person who murdered his wife that he loved. And through these scenes, we have to know that, like you said, he has this like good relationship with his wife, but also for us as an audience to feel like, oh man, you know, you had this perfect wife and stay on his side. When Richard faces off with the one-armed man on the L and, you know, he gets the one up on him and handcuffs him to the, to the bar on the train it's the final like when he takes his head and you know hits it against yeah. the door i feel that that is like for helen every single time because he's not a violent guy yeah and he takes him out one our man's already down but it, that final thing is like f you you killed my wife 
Well, let's talk about the one-armed man. Oh, yeah, the one-armed man. You know, Sykes very is his name. compelling performance. He kind of looks like a, like a serial killer almost. Yeah. Um, he looks like a bad guy, and he has the bushy hair like uh, he did in the original story. That's true, yeah. yeah. I like the idea that we start learning a little bit about his character, too. The movie does take its time to where... Um, we go into the prosthetic arm section of the hospital. Not, you know, now we have Gerard tracking Harrison Ford, and now Harrison Ford's tracking the the Sykes character, the one armed man character. I think it's so cool that the production did take their time to do the research and work with Northwestern Hospital to um, get kind of the layout of what a facility would look like and really go kind of in depth. It, it gives it so much more legitimacy then, you know, when you say it's the one-armed man, I mean, it's something that's been parodied countless yeah. times, um, but it, it doesn't come off as jokey or anything like that. But this guy, you were the one that brought it up that he's such a scumbag-looking fellow and that uh, Deputy Gerard knows it. As soon as they interact with him the first time, it's like, that guy's dirty. We got to get somebody on this yeah. guy. He ain't cool. Something's wrong with that dude. Another character that's really kind of scumbaggy looking is the kid the grandson of the woman <laughs> who's uh what is he doing is he he's busted for like harboring 13 year olds something he's he's um like selling drugs it, to them yeah it's you you like shooting up not shooting up um you like stringing out young girls yeah huh? stringing out young girls yeah maybe i thought he said stringing up young girls i thought it was originally um I thought it was some type of prostitution thing, yeah. but I think it's just like getting but, girls hooked on drugs. And, and that's someone that just Andrew Davis found that looked the part. And he looks like someone like a James Gum type character. Yeah. A James Gum type Gum. character. Andrew Davis said he was looking for somebody that looked like John Belushi. I'm like, how? B- because he's got big cheeks and is a big boy? Like, yeah. he doesn't look like... He doesn't look like an actor, though. He looks like no, a real but, dude. Yeah. Yeah. And as does his mother. And yeah. I love that they're just called like, it's like the Polish lady. Yeah. She doesn't have a name. <laughs> the Polish landlady. So let's let's get to the, the main course here. Uh, Harrison Ford, the marquee name on the movie, mm-hmm. um, very involved in this whole production. It sounded like, you know, he had a lot of creative input. He had a lot of... Uh, in interviews, you know, he's like, the buck stops here, like pointing to himself. It really is. I mean, the, the movie, even though the Gerard character is fascinating and it's fun to see Tommy Lee Jones chew scenery, the majority of the Harrison Ford parts are, uh, he's like not talking. But he's not you know, reacting to anyone. Yeah. You know, he's just on the run or he's like, he's thinking about what he needs to do or mm-hmm. we're watching him trying to figure stuff out. And that could all be really, really boring with a with an actor who doesn't know how that who doesn't like emit all these you know emotions in Harrison Ford he does have this warmth to him but he also has like an intelligence to him in this movie where and I think he carries that in like all of his movies there yeah. always seems to be like this intelligence or worldly all-knowing wisdom but yeah to to basically like get taken through this whole journey with one character I'm really like drawn into the way Harrison Ford paints Richard Kimball as this complicated human who is in a drastic situation but is able to use his like wits in his connection to a hospital try to get in to get supplies but then at the same time you know he's like such a good human that he like saves this little kid's life risking getting caught by staying there an extra like 10 minutes to 
diagnose this little kid and tell an employee like here's what you should do or whatever and he's like dressed as a janitor because he's trying not to blow his cover the idea of richard still maintaining his sense of integrity and that he's a good humanitarian like he saves three people including gerard throughout the movie and he even when he's fighting with Sykes on the train and Sykes shoots a police officer on the train, he still bothers to check to check the pulse of the cop to make sure he's dead. You know, he's he can't help but be a good guy. And not that we need that to be reinforced for Kimball, that he's a good guy. We know he's innocent. But I do think that it helps the character and that it still helps you root for him and, and want him to uh, uh, keep pushing forward. Yeah. One scene, and I know we've already talked about improv, but the initial interrogation scene with Harrison Ford and the two cops, and one of those cops, uh, Joseph Casala, he's kind of squatty with glasses. That guy's a real cop and actor. That scene was made up on the spot. And of course, you know, you've got your cop spearheading what an actual interrogation is going to be like, but Ford didn't know the questions that they were going to ask him. And that's one of the reasons that the scene feels so legit. And there's there's no question watching that. And I mean, I've said plenty of times in this podcast, I've seen every Dateline episode. I've watched some interrogations in my life. That guy is not lying. He's being completely honest. He is an innocent man, but this is just a police force that's like, well, it's the husband. He totally did it. But learning that Ford didn't know what they were going to ask, it's just gut-wrenching. No, I totally agree. And that scene that really is, I mean, for, again, being made up on the spot, such a pivotal moment in the movie yeah, right? where you're, you see how, like, damaged he is from this murder. Uh, finally, one thing I want to say about Ford, and it's not so much about his acting, but, like, his actual physical presence is I, I, is what I like about these types of movies um, where this isn't, I wouldn't really consider this an action movie, but it is a little bit. And there's, you know, several action scenes where Harrison Ford has to be very physical. And he, to me, like he looks like a regular type person. I mean, he he's a doctor. He's probably stays in shape, but it's, to me, it's so much more believable when I see a movie like this, where he comes out of the water and he's doesn't look like he's like worked out like 10 hours a day, whereas like, you know, if you're watching a movie with like Jason Statham or something where he's supposed to be living this like reckless life, but then in the next scene, he's like just totally ripped. Like it looks like he just never leaves the gym. He looks better than a normal dude physique, but still like passable. Yeah. Harrison Ford is, he's, is this strange um, balance between being very dad-like. I always tell my dad that he reminds me of Harrison Ford they look nothing alike but for some reason it's like that dad quality but also everyday guy but also a little bit cooler than the everyday guy all American but not American in the career he's had I mean he's been a lead huge star since like the late 70s and he's about to wear the fedora again for the new Indiana Jones movie which I'll go see you know I'm not gonna say anything great like hyped up about it or negative about it but Harrison Ford still has something I mean I'm going to see it for Harrison Ford I'm not necessarily going to see it for other reasons I'll go to my grave defending every single movie he's been in I don't care if you think it's bad man I hear people talk smack on regarding Henry and I I even use that for that's a great movie yeah I like it when Harrison Ford goes a little you know, Regarding Henry is an awesome movie. Yeah, I, I mean, you know. okay, maybe awesome is the yeah, wrong I, I word for it. I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that far. Okay, awesome is not 
the right word. Yeah. But I do think that it is very endearing. And and when you've talked about this before, they don't make movies like yeah. that anymore. It's yeah. special. Because they don't ever do well at the box office. Yeah. But yeah. you put Harrison Ford in that and it might do pretty yeah, well. Yeah, might, might do it. And I know it, it feels like, please correct me if I'm wrong. It feels like, are you more a fan of Tommy Lee Jones in this movie than Harrison Ford? If you're going to compare the two, if you're going to have to pick one or the other, man, it's like really tough. I, I think it depends on like in what context, you okay. know, like if I'm saying like, Hey, what's, what's the most fun part of the fugitive? It's like Tommy Lee Jones, just like ripping on people and like ordering people around and like having like quick wit. I want to like punch sarcasm. him right in the throat, but see, I, I can't I, handle him. <laughs> no, I, I think really? he's great. I think he's great. And I understand why he won an Oscar, but I want to slap him so hard. See, I think this is one of his better roles, and I, I'll i talk about this a little bit when I get to my pick of the week, but he's even earlier on before The Fugitive, he was working on perfecting that sense of sarcasm and like where mm-hmm. he's being a little goofy, a little funny, but at the expense of somebody else, but at the same time, is so like has a tough demeanor that no one is going to defend themselves. They're like sort of just in awe of like, okay, this guy just took over the room. I, I kind of get what you're saying, but somehow he plays it in the way to me where like, it doesn't feel where I'd be like, who is this asshole? You know, just be like, Whoa, <laughs> I'm almost like impressed that he was able to just like start commanding the room so quickly. I don't think that it is Tommy Lee Jones that I don't like. I think it's the character that I, yeah. that I want to slap. Tommy Lee Jones does do a wonderful job in this movie. He's great at playing a jerk. He's done it many times. I'm not trying to talk smack on him. I'm just more on the, the Harrison Ford side of this. I do have a question for you plot wise and Tommy Lee Jones wise. In the finale, when we've got Joey Pants, Gerard, uh, Dr. Nichols, and Kimball all sneaking around trying to get each other in the laundry room in the big finale, and Gerard basically blurts out all of the exposition and says, I believe you, Kimball. We know that there was this whole plot against you, and it was, I know you didn't kill your wife. Um, How do you feel about that it, it all being kind of nicely summed up i would say that's my least favorite of the scenes that are in really? the movie but okay. at the same time I, i've just you know i and i've watched so many movies you know you can kind of see the the wheels turning of like all right we got to get this yeah it feels a little squeezed in but at the same time i like it better than it the, if they would have ended that scene in the car they're sitting in the cop car and that's when tommy lee jones says listen i know you didn't kill your wife blah 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 like I like that they decided to insert it into a scene that had a little bit of tension and action where, you know, Harrison Ford's still fighting his friend, the okay. doctor. Mm-hmm. So you and Tommy Lee Jones might agree on this. He he didn't really care for that being kind of summed up nicely. But, you know, for the character of Gerard, I take that scene, it could go one of two ways. Because I take Gerard as... as a, jerk even though he is fair he's the law he's tries to be balanced he's kind of a dick i could take that both ways either that he could be playing kimball and just wanting to flush him out and saying whatever he needs to to get him out or that he does actually believe him and because gerard out of any of the main characters 
is somebody that goes through an evolution from the beginning of the movie to the end. He is kind of a different guy by the end of the movie. I don't know. I, I get the argument that or I get why maybe you and, and Jones would agree that it's, you know, kind of squirrely yeah, well, to sum it up. When I get, you know, I think the way the characters portrayed, which I like in that why that scene feels the way it does is because I think through the through the majority of the movie, we see Tommy Lee Jones playing this character as a guy who like, he's not like following some television show when he gets off work. There is no getting off of work. Yeah. It's like every moment of his mind is focused on where's Richard right now. Another minute has passed. He's probably here. He could already be here. His mind never seems to stop and turn off. Like work is just work 24 seven. Nobody's working harder than he is or thinking about this more than he is. It's true. He's obsessive having him give all that information out at the end, it doesn't bother me. It's not one of my favorite scenes, but I could watch like another two dozen scenes of like Tommy Lee Jones ripping on his crew or like <laughs> joking around with them. And th- they surrounded him with some great actors in all the scenes in which they're like, you know, razzing each other, razzing each other back and forth or amongst my favorite. Yeah. And probably the best out of that crew, the biggest standout is is going to be Joey Pants. I don't think there's ever been anything that he's been in that I haven't enjoyed him. But he's more of the equal to Gerard than any of the other crew. I know one of the uh, interviews I saw with Joey Pants, he said that originally his character was supposed to die. And then he told Andrew Davis, like, oh, you can't kill me. Like, if you guys do a sequel, I need to be be able to come back and if my character's dead then they won't bring me back and they said well how about you get knocked out but he was like that wasn't good enough because he does get hit with a gigantic beam iron beam (laughs) like in the face um and goes down but so he said that whenever they filmed him like on the gurney like he said i tried to move around and be like oh like so that the yeah he's holding an ice pack on his face it was clear that i was like alive and uh he did say that uh, I thought they did this great in the behind the scenes where uh, he said he did talk to Harrison Ford and he said, uh, you know, Harrison Ford's like, what are you worried about like this? And he's like, Harrison Ford's telling Joey Pants, like, you know, just do the scene. Why are you, why are you wanting all this extra stuff? And he's like, well, if, he was like, if I die, I won't be in the sequel. And then Harrison Ford's like, I promise you there's not going to be a sequel because I ain't going <laughs> to, I ain't going to do it. And then they cut to the, in the interview, they cut to like the picture of U.S. Marshals and Joey Pants does have like a, a bigger role in that movie. As he should. If you're going to yeah. do a sequel, you should have him And he that. does. I think Andrew uh, Davis said that he was always kind of mugging for the camera. He would do anything he could to get, to not just be the background of Tommy Lee Jones to really, you know, get up front. And he does, I mean, he goes toe-to-toe with Tommy Lee Jones and like just about any scene if Tommy Lee Jones is talking to one of his crew back and forth it's Joey Pants. He's a really resourceful actor even in my pick of the week that I'll talk about the final terror his performance in that is kind of jarringly good and in a role that I haven't really seen before yeah Um, no he's a he's a versatile guy he can play a, a man of the law as well as a scumbag criminal Ooh, in in equal measure in The Sopranos, he's probably the worst. It's, again, with the uh, someone being such a good actor like Tommy Lee Jones and me hating their character. Not hating. I don't hate Gerard. But me being, you know, whatever. Their character is a little much for me. In The Sopranos, Joey Pants, what a terrible guy. But yeah. he's great at playing a terrible guy. Um, Daniel Roebuck, um, that's somebody else that's part of the crew. He plays a... One of the U.S. Marshals, Biggs. He's uh, got the big old stash. 
probably the scene that a lot of people uh, would remember with him um, is he's the one that says hinky and um, Gerard's like hinky what is that what does that even mean that's not even a word that whole scene Daniel Roebuck I think I grew up watching him on Matlock yeah Daniel Roebuck uh, in one of my picks of the week from a long time ago uh, River's Edge mm-hmm. plays the killer in that in a very creepy and convincing way but kind of one of those like a that guy you know you see him in been in like hundreds of movies where he usually has like a bit part but yeah he's really it was like really well cast to like not just use unseasoned actors like everybody that they chose for Tommy Lee Jones crew is like a character actor who's like you know always shows up in like one episode of like a television series and you know the one person in this U.S. Marshals crew um who plays Poole L. Scott Caldwell the one woman She's the one it feels like just doesn't take Tommy Lee Jones' shit. Yeah. She's just like, whatever. Here he goes, blowing off some steam again. Whatever, dude. But she's also like on it all the <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, she's, she's totally like, on fact. it. And yeah. she was, she's been in, I mean, hundreds and hundreds yeah. of like the judge or like the cop or what, you know, you, you just see her. I, I don't know why they didn't bring her back for the U.S. Marshals, maybe scheduling. I think, if I remember correctly, I think there was a scheduling conflict. She was in a, a theater production, okay. I think. I can't remember of what. But yeah, because yeah, they, they cast another woman to play. Well, not the same character, but just so that he had a rounded out crew. It was a scheduling conflict. I yeah. remember that. Yeah. And the main villain of the movie is not necessarily the one-armed man, as it turns out. Spoiler alert. If you haven't watched The Fugitive, we're going to ruin it here, but the... The friend of Richard Kimball is a doctor, and when we first see him in his first interview with the police, he's so pompous in a good way. He really stands out in this movie because, um, you know, they're like, oh, have you spoken, uh, you know, Richard Kimball? It's like, matter of fact, I spoke to him this morning. Like, and I'm he's sorry, just very, what? And they're, yeah, the, you know, and, and he's like kind of jovial about it and laughing, and the cops are like, you didn't think this was like, you know, you should have called us or something. You know, and that he's. I gave like, him a couple bucks. What's yeah. the big deal? <laughs> it, it just the way he is in this movie. Uh, it reminds me a lot of a like a Christoph Waltz type performance, and uh, just really um, stands out like right away. It's like you know we've got Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones, blazing on the screen with his inter. You know his first uh, introduction into the movie, and then we've got this doctor. Yeah, Jerome Crebe does a great job with this. And I he wasn't originally cast in this role. So for him to be, like, they had even shot plenty of scenes with another actor that dropped out due to an illness. But to be someone that's inserted back into this that wasn't originally part of the cast, uh, he does a great job. And with his character, too, I, I can't say I fully remember, like, when I first saw this. But I do think that it, it is somewhat of a shock like you're not expecting him to be behind the whole murder of yeah. of Helen Kimball. And he's uh he's like such a smart and cunning type guy. So once all that is exposed, you're like, "Okay, I get it now." Then but you then, see the evil. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, you see the evil, but then when Harrison Ford confronts him and they're finally alone away from everybody, like that dude is like a towering towering big yeah, dude. He's, he's, a he's so much man. bigger than like Harrison Ford and just starts like pummeling Harrison Ford. Like, dang, he's like super smart and cunning. And then he can also like delivering a bunch of blows to Harrison Ford's face. Their whole fight sequence is, is, um, goes on just for the right amount of time. And it's pretty good, pretty believable. They look like they're delivering some yeah. legit blows. And Ford's really holding Krabay like yeah. on the edge of this building. Like, that's not, they're, they're, that's not green screen or anything. There's, it's kind of a hairy moment. Yeah. Yeah. 
And to kind of round out the cast, one person that helps Kimball expose that Dr. Nichols is behind this whole thing is a little bit part by none other than Jane Lynch. In one, I think it was like her first of two yeah. or three performances yeah. in a film. Yeah. And she's great. Very. No, it was like right away, uh, as soon as she popped on screen, I was like, whoa, Jane Lynch. I was not expecting that. And another person that popped on screen, Julianne Moore also has like a pretty small role Mm-hmm. before she blew up and uh really you know it's not much of a role but like she's the person that kind of like questions uh Harrison Ford when he's like sneaking into the hospital but then is also confused that he's this uh fugitive but also that he saved a little boy's life and fun fact with some cut out material from from the original script was that there was supposed to be shoehorned in um some type of possible romance with her yeah. a little bit i'm so glad it was cut and out i think one of the producers said it didn't make sense because if he's so in love with his wife and trying to clear it why would he start this romance i 100 percent agree i'm yeah. so glad that the movie didn't stall with like a 10 minute weird romance between him and her i think the idea was she was supposed to help him uncover what was going on with his pharmaceutical company and that you know what was the whole conspiracy behind that but they it seems like they shifted that over to the Jane Lynch character, which it was summed up perfectly. And I wonder, too, because uh, Lynch and Ford, they both agreed that their scene together was kind of weird. So they reworked it basically on the spot. So I wonder if that was just reworked after they decided we're not going to have that part with Julianne Moore's character. Yeah. Let's move it over to you. And a man, props to Jane Lynch. I mean, she's had a history of doing great improv. She's Second City alum. Yeah. But to, uh, you know, in your third movie, you're going, you're opposite Harrison Ford and, you know, they're like, hey, do you guys want to like riff, you know, make this scene better? It's pretty cool. Yeah. And one final kind of cool fun fact is that there are two Cusacks in this movie, not the ones you might think of, John or Joan, um, but the Cusacks are a Chicago family. But we've got father to all of the Cusacks, Dick Cusack, playing Richard Kimball's attorney. And then Bill Cusack, brother to John and Joan, um, he's the guy who's uh, only in a couple scenes, but he's the um, the tracer guy who's working with the U.S. Marshals who's on the wiretaps, and like he's that guy. It's kind of fun. There's a lot of Chicago people in yeah. this movie, and I mean, that has a lot to do with Andrew Davis and just kind of, you know, where they were building up that entire Chicago vibe. Yeah, it sounds like he put in a lot of like friends and family mm-hmm. too, like in background ex- as background extras. Yeah. I love that when directors do that. They come down and visit me at the set and I'll throw you in a scene. Yeah. To take a break from cast, how about first off, just the post production of this movie? What a great title sequence! Not too often that I see a title sequence, you know, in a movie and think, wow, those are some great titles. The way the letters move and the colors of the titles, the blue against the black, like the drop shadow. And it's revealing just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, just and then a little bit. Yeah. And then uh, again, the way this movie is paced, there's moments where it breathes. It, it doesn't feel like it has to go at like a breakneck pace, but it also like never drags. I feel like no moments are wasted in this movie. And for like a two hour movie for me to go on a journey with some characters uh, and not get bored or also not feel like 
I'm just getting bombarded with like a million cuts. It's kind of surprising because this movie had a lot of editors and they were down to the wire trying to get this movie done in post-production. They didn't have many weeks left. So Warner Brothers set up something like seven editing suites with multiple people taking on different scenes. And it seems to me that something like that could end up when you put the final product together could end up a like mess honestly with a lot of cuts that don't flow together but i mean this movie was nominated for best editing and all of those people were recognized it's kind of cool that it doesn't rely upon editing to keep up the action but it it completely works and with so many cooks in the kitchen piecing this movie together I don't know. It's kind of a feat. It feels like it. Yeah. And this is also one of the few movies I feel like we've talked about in a while where we didn't discover like, and the first cut was like four hours long and we had to (laughs) pare it down to like what it is today. It was like they had a pretty lean cut to start with. Yeah. And the things that were cut out were like what we talked about with Julianne Moore's character or, you know, Kimball milling around town, like that sort of thing, like things that could be cut out of a movie. Now, would I watch the extended cut of The Fugitive? Sure. Is Two hours and seven minutes perfect for this? 100%. Yeah. Um, Another thing that tops this movie off is the score. Originally, it was set to a Jerry Goldsmith, like, temp track. And when James Newton Howard sat down to do it and heard the Goldsmith score, I mean, I can just imagine he just, like, threw down the papers and was like, well, how am I going to top that one? And it's how he felt. He felt really intimidated and kind of thought what he came out with wasn't that good to me i think the score is absolutely wonderful scores for movies are supposed to be emotional and make you really feel the impact of everything that's happening in the movie especially in an action film i can't imagine being the dude that comes up with this score and thinking that it was crap um but again nominated for best score i've said plenty of times on this podcast that i'm a fan of montages There's one in this one that the music really helps uh, push along parts of the narrative where we need it kind of not necessarily sped up, but but we're getting a lot of information where Richard's investigating and trying to figure out who killed his wife. And, you know, Tommy Lee Jones is contemplating and trying to find where he is. And, And the music that's over that montage, it almost doesn't even feel like a montage because there's. Um, just action put into this um, and it really is the score that keeps that going whether or not you're a fan of M. Night Shyamalan all his movies are loaded with atmosphere and uh, James Newton Howard has pretty much like composed every single one of his films Um, and also I think most people know him as the composer for Nolan's Batman movies but more specifically The Dark Knight which has a very distinct and brooding score and there's a lot of that in The Fugitive it gets percussive and like it's like a little like it's almost like it's hammering at you to like drive tension and then he'll do like the the quiet release yeah so when you're listening to interviews of Harrison Ford and the director and stuff they all rate the fugitive is amongst their best Harrison Ford can be pretty cantankerous about how he feels about some of the movies that he's done I always get the sense that he like doesn't like Star Wars at all but when he mentions the fugitives, he even says, like, you won't hear me say this about too many of my films, but we made a damn good movie. And everybody that bet on the fugitive was a winner. This movie was a massive hit. It grossed three hundred and like sixty something at the domestic box office. It was the third highest grossing film of nineteen ninety three, the first being Jurassic Park, which was 
an insane cultural event. And then number two, that was kind of a surprise, Mrs. Doubtfire. It was a pretty big movie. It was a big movie, yeah. But uh, Harrison Ford, you know, has had been a box office star for already like 15 years at this point and continued to do kind of these adult-themed big box office type movies. The Fugitive, not only was it a huge hit with audiences, it was a hit with critics, and it also garnered seven Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, and uh, Tommy Lee Jones won for Best Supporting Actor. Nominated, too, for Best Cinematography, editing basically every sound award as well. And post the success of The Fugitive, it kind of went on into pop culture, Uh, It was parodied in the movie called Wrongfully Accused. And they even do the openings like The Fugitive. And it's absolutely ridiculous. I watched about 20 minutes of it the other night. And worth your time. I think it's streaming somewhere right now for free. The movie was also so successful that even though uh, Harrison Ford said he wouldn't do a sequel, and he didn't, the Tommy Lee Jones character was so popular that they you know, were like, hey, why don't we just write a whole movie around the Tommy Lee Jones tracking down another person and so they made U.S. Marshals with uh, Tommy Lee Jones and a lot of the same people that played his crew in The Fugitive. Uh, This time he's tracking Wesley Snipes and then they throw in uh, Robert Downey Jr. Man, I like the setup of this movie. I like the first like 20 minutes and I love when Tommy Lee Jones first gets on the scene, starts hollering orders and people are like, who is this guy? Kind of really doing what he did in the first one, but I still, it didn't feel old to me. But man, the rest of the movie is kind of a drag. And Wesley Snipes, they don't really give him a ton to work with. And he's not as uh, interesting to watch as Harrison Ford is. But it was still successful. It made like $100 million at the box office. Not really one to revisit. You didn't end up catching the U.S. Marshals before? No, I couldn't find it streaming. And then I didn't go the extra mile to watch all of it. I know I've seen parts of it throughout my lifetime, but I did fail. I know when you department. asked me if you should watch it, I didn't sound very encouraging about the movie. No. you were. Yeah. Do you own it? I think I do. I should have uh, just maybe. borrowed it from you. But, yeah. But you know, I, I do think that uh, the, the fact that The Fugitive lives on in um, kind of pop culture like lexicon with like the one-armed man or you know, that sort of thing. I think it's uh, been something that lives on in parody form, which is the highest compliment. Yeah, and you know? I, I got to say, I when I was talking to people about The Fugitive, I never really hear anybody say, oh, that's overrated. No one. No one says that. I mean, I never really hear anyone say anything bad about The Fugitive. You bring it up and like, man, it's like a really good movie. I'm going to mm-hmm. you know, end up watching it. I mentioned it to my friend Jen the other day, and she just started laughing immediately. And I'm like, why are you laughing about The Fugitive? And she's like, you know, at the end when, you know, when they're, Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford, they're like chummy. And she's like, I love that quote where he says, where Tommy Lee Jones says, you know what? I'm glad it's over. I need the rest. <laughs> I had never really thought about that quote yeah. until it was pointed out to me. It is kind of funny how he says it. Well, let's, uh, we'll come back for some final thoughts on The Fugitive, but let's get into our picks of the week. Lindsay, you did a early, early Andrew Davis movie, and that was Final Terror. What can you tell me about that? I've seen a ton of slashers, and somehow the final terror has escaped me until this dive into The Fugitive and Andrew Davis's career. This film didn't perform well at the box office, but as we talked about in our 80s versus 90s slashers episode, this genre became saturated in the early 80s. People just got burnt out 
But the real burn for the final terror is that it was shot in 81 and not released until 83. It didn't have a fair shot amongst the slasher saturated market. But the film is just littered with talent, a well-known producer, a gung-ho crew, and though it follows a lot of slasher tropes, it also branched into survivalist territory, not really seen since Deliverance. And if anyone is going to compare it to another film, it's certainly going to be Deliverance over any other horror film dealing with a camp setting. For everything that makes it typical of horror movies, it still manages to stand out. The final terror is five California Conservation Corps young guys and four willing-to-explore-the-woods young women who head out into, I think, clear some streams and make some trails in this gorgeous northern California forest. While their driver is someone that they know, he's a little odd and reluctant about taking them. Either he's a jerk or weird, just something is off about him. But none of these 10 people are teens and they're certainly not going to go to a summer camp. We've got a little bit of weed talk and some bothersome adult campfire story that doesn't have the air of leading us, but it all makes sense in the film's climax. One classic horror trope missing from The Final Terror is that it's surprisingly equal respect and care for women involved, uh, especially in the early 80s. And normally we would automatically worry for anyone of color too, but fear not in this movie. We do have a killer stalking this group of campers, but what lingers throughout the film more so than the kills is the level of foreboding and creepiness shrouded by curious, gruesome findings as the campers begin to disappear. The initial plans are abandoned as the trip turns into finding those missing from the group and then getting the hell out of Dodge. Set in the Jedediah Smith Redwood State Park, the forest becomes just as much of a character as anyone else. The greenery is just so thick and damp, it's not something that looks obvious like they like they did a bunch of clearing before filming. And fun fact, it's also the same forest that was featured in Return of the Jedi. The story was penned um, by a few people, but most notably Ronald Shusett. He's the one who gets the most credit for it. And Shusett, some might be familiar with his name from writing Alien, Total Recall, Minority Report, and another Andrew Davis film, Above the Law, which I think was one of your picks of the week, wasn't it, Justin? Oh, yeah. Thought so. Producer Samuel Arkov was one headstrong fellow behind this project. He knew horror and had produced a ridiculous amount of Roger Corman films, too. For those that don't know this, Arkov's name, his last name, had also become an acronym in the horror world. Arkov meaning action, revolution, killing, oratory, fornication, and fantasy were all elements that he wanted to be top-notch and front-center in every movie that he produced. Arkoff put Joe Roth in charge of producing this project, and after completion, in what would be a split from the horror genre, which worked really against the film, there were only three kills initially, and Roth knew that there needed to be more in order to make an impact in the horror market, but with production wrapped, the film's opening was reshot without Davis behind the camera so there could just be two more kills front-loading the beginning of the movie. As for our campers, The Final Terror would predate many of the future stars who'd go on to bigger projects, like The Fugitives, Joe Pantiliano. Um, He's kind of a mentor to a lot of these younger actors who had lesser experience, and Joey Pants displays the same amount of intensity as he would in his later roles. You definitely don't forget his performance in this movie. The next famous facial recognizes Daryl Hannah, and this was her second film. Adrian Zemed, he sticks out too, because though The Final Terror was released afterwards, Zemed would go on to star in Grease 2, multiple seasons of T.J. Hooker, and then later Bachelor Party. 
Mark Metcalf, as many Animal House fans know, that is Niedermeyer. Um, he went on to have a lengthy career. Rachel Ward, she went on to do The Thornbirds and Against All Odds. And Akosia Busia would later do The Color Purple and also become a pretty huge producer and screenwriter, including writing the screenplay for one of my picks of the week, Beloved. Really, everyone with this cast does a great job, especially for being so early in their careers. And I loved seeing Lewis Smith's face because I'd only really known him from The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai and a favorite on this podcast, Southern Comfort. Though there was that two-year gap between production wrapping and the film's release, uh, when it was released, it did capitalize on the fame of Daryl Hannah in Blade Runner and Zemed from Grease 2. So that's why the film was eventually picked up for distribution. The music really does deserve a shout out too. The movie opens with a semi-Cure inspired song which feels unique to horror movies and also very of the time. There's some classic usage of dramatic single synth notes to ramp up tension, a sense of helplessness, but varied enough from what would be expected from this time at Slashers. There are a few times where some sound effects are used that feel very Halloween inspired. And although it's a little derivative, it's very effective in creating a creep out vibe. So, you know, whatever. The film is always compared to Friday the 13th, and I love that movie. But The Final Terror holds my attention way more. For Friday the 13th, I'm watching for the kills. And eventually, when we get around to Mrs. Voorhees, The Final Terror has me engaged because of the muddy, wet mess of peril this group is lost in. Honestly, my biggest criticism, especially looking back on a 40-year-old movie, is that I wish it had a better title. I think it was originally called Bump in the Night, which is not at all any better. If you've not seen The Final Terror and love slashers, seek it out. It's a character and story-driven movie, not a straight-up slash and gash. I hope that this Andrew Davis movie eventually reaches a larger audience. It was recently put out by Shout Factory. Um, so hopefully that will help it. But it is interesting to note that the film had to be pieced back together from six or seven different sources. So there are occasional light leaks and aspects which, you know, aren't technically up to par. But if you look at it as if it's adding atmosphere to the overall picture, I think it totally works. I bumped this movie up to my soon-to-watch list. Um, I have never seen it, but you've got me super interested. I know I had a lot to say on this one, but it was because I was genuinely surprised that, you know, a slasher from this era stood out to me now. So much talent packed mm -hmm. into this like little low budget movie, which is uh, very similar to my pick of the week. Oh, please, Justin, tell me about your pick of the week. I will. So the movie I chose was Black Moon Rising that came out in 1986. And this is one of those movies that has sort of gained a cult following, but is definitely a movie that's not talked about enough. The kind of movie that I miss from the 80s, these B-movies that were lower budgeted but still had like future Academy Award winners in them, great scores and competent direction. The movie was directed by Harley Coakless, who did my favorite one who did one of my favorite uh, Burt Reynolds movies, Malone from the 80s. If you followed any of the uh, B action movies that he did in the 80s, uh, definitely one to check out. More importantly, this movie was co-written by John Carpenter, one of the few movies that he wrote or co-wrote that he didn't direct himself. And Carpenter um, doesn't really acknowledge this movie much. Um, he wrote this movie around the same time he wrote Escape from New York, and there are some similarities between this movie and that one. Carpenter said, quote, it was my car is stolen and I'm going to get it backstory. I've never seen the final film. So doesn't sound like he was too happy about it. I don't know if there was some turnaround or he was supposed to direct it. I'm not sure. This movie I definitely think would have been better had Carpenter directed it. It's not a phenomenal movie and it's definitely not anywhere near um, the quality of a Carpenter film, but it's pretty damn good. 
It's a futuristic movie starring Tommy Lee Jones, who's front and center here doing great work as the lead. He plays an ex-con. He's hired by the FBI to go in to steal this disc that has some incriminating evidence by a gigantic corporation. There's a lot of crazy subplots in this movie, so at times it gets a little convoluted, but I think it really makes up for it in style and performances. But Tommy Lee Jones steals this computer disc in the beginning of the movie, and he needs to hide it. And so he happens to see this really amazing futuristic looking car he hides it in the back of this car and this car is like a prototype it looks like almost like a delorean type thing i think this movie is really playing off of a terminator that had come out a few years prior it also co-stars linda hamilton from terminator she works for this car thief ring that ends up stealing this futuristic car now tommy lee jones is forced with tracking down the stolen car so he can get the disc back so he can make his money from the fbi which he plans to retire on He's looking out for himself. He's looking out for his future. The reason why I bring up uh, Escape from New York is uh, Tommy Lee Jones is very much similar to the Snake Plissken character where he doesn't really want to be working for anybody, but he's kind of got his back against the wall. It's like him for himself. And so there's all this entanglement of, you know, the FBI is trying to get the disc. They're, they're pressuring Tommy Lee Jones. There's an FBI agent played by Bubba Smith from police academy fame you know they don't respect tommy lee jones because he's an ex-con and so they're not really friends with him but they need him to do the dirty work it's uh unclear why the fbi can't do it themselves maybe they don't want to do anything that's uh, quote unquote illegal uh tommy lee jones is breaking into places and doing nefarious things uh, meanwhile we have lee ving from fear who also plays an ex-con who's working for this evil corporation who is trying to cover up the fact that there's this disc that exists that has uh, incriminating evidence against them. So now he's after Tommy Lee Jones. And so we have all of this sort of crisscrossing fighting over all trying to either get this disc or this car. The car is in some ways the star of the film. It's pretty cool looking. The look of this movie is pretty pretty sweet. It kind of does have a, um, a lot of blues, a lot of dark, but a lot of like real bright, brightly lit night scenes. He, uh, reminds me a lot of like Repo Man, Terminator, Escape from New York, Blade Runner. They were definitely going for something that looked interesting and futuristic. I think the budget of this movie was like $6 million, but it looks like a much bigger budget than it has, even if some of the futuristic contents of it seem a little dated. And finally, a real standout of the movie is the score by Lalo Schifrin. He did, uh, I think, like eight movies with Clint Eastwood, most of the Dirty Harry movies, uh, he did a lot of Burt Reynolds movies back in the day, uh, even did the original score to the original Mission Impossible series. And so, again, going back to what I was saying in the beginning of it's just cool to see in the 80s that they would release these sort of like low budget movies. But the, the talent behind them was like really, really big. I mean, they have a six million dollar budget, but they'd get somebody who had done big Hollywood scores. And so when you're watching it now. You can say, oh, this is a little low-budget movie, but then you look at the quality of the talent behind it, and it really elevates the movie. It's free to watch on Tubi right now. Um, also, they're, uh, in the last few years, uh, Kino Lorber has put out a really nicely remastered Blu-ray that's available. Totally worth your money buying, um, especially if you're a completist like me and you want to have anything that John Carpenter has ever touched in your collection. Yeah, you've sold me on this. And just looking up visually, I've never heard of this before. And I don't even think it's not coming up in like memory that I even flashed over it uh, when I was younger. But now um, I'm into those 80s futuristic 
type of things. I mean, you can just sell me on the visuals, really. Well, those are our picks of the week. Black Moon Rising and... The Final Terror. Check them both out. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. This Murray moment almost centered around Chicago, a city which is not a stranger to this section of the podcast. With both Harrison Ford and Billy being from that area and so many locations in The Fugitive being in the streets that Billy has traversed, uh, there's a, kind of an endless amount of roads that I could explore. But instead, I found myself heading over to Japan for this one. I'd always heard that Bill's character, Bob Harris, in Lost in Translation had been based upon Harrison Ford. Internet gossips might even say that the movie was based on writer-director Sofia Coppola and Ford. But the truth is that Bob Harris was modeled after Harrison Ford, or at least his Hollywood stardom caliber of achievement, and more pointedly, one specific acting job Ford had in the 90s. Throughout her 20s, Coppola did a lot of traveling in Japan. She was soaking up the culture and finding herself in spaces like karaoke bars, like what we see with one iconic scene in Lost in Translation. No stranger to a media-saturated world or being around famous folks, Coppola took note of everything that she observed, especially how American culture often seeped into Japanese media. One particular crossover she noticed was American actors featured in big-time Japanese print ads and TV commercials. And one spokesperson for Kieran Lager Beer was none other than Harrison Ford. Admittedly, and I love Lost in Translation, I never thought of Ford as being the inspiration for Bill's Bob Harris character, but I can totally see it now. Bob Harris isn't hawking beer, but he's repping Centauri whiskey. You know, for a relaxing time, make it Centauri time. Coppola isn't ripping off Ford's commercials, and Bill plays Bob much differently than what Ford played in his Japanese beer commercials. But it's a leading man who's had a long-standing, respectable career, who can cross over to another culture and be just as big of a celebrity as he is in America, and depending on the setting, he might even be treated with more resounding adoration than in America. The aging aspect is played up in Coppola's film too, but as both Harrison and Bill have done in their individual careers, both actors can easily acclimate. It's not like Ford's really been held back in the action department when the guy's 81 and about to do another Indiana Jones movie. But let's get back to this phenomenon because I'm not done with the fugitive connection. Some American celebrities would never dream of making a TV commercial or for some go back into commercial work. But the truth is they can totally cash in on doing ads overseas and the country known to throw the most money into this phenomenon is Japan. And though this actor didn't serve as an inspiration for Bill and Lost in Translation, the fugitive's Tommy Lee Jones also hopped on this bandwagon by appearing in Japanese commercials for Boss Coffee. Ford, Jones, and Bob Harris aren't the only American celebrities doing commercials like these, and it's pretty incredible um, if you do a deep dive into uh, investigating this into YouTube, because it really turns into a lot of fun. It's very absurdist, ridiculous, and kind of strange, but... 
I would say that these commercials in some way expand um, these respected actors' uh, careers. Like you really see how extreme they can be from liquor to beer to cigarettes, mopeds, cars, shampoo, banks. I mean, the list goes on. Schwarzenegger got in on this. He's probably my second favorite to Harrison Ford's. But even, you know, Bruce Willis, Jackie Chan, who was repping China, not Japan, Jodie friggin' Foster, Richard Gere, Meg Ryan, DiCaprio, Cindy Crawford. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And like I said, you can go down a YouTube rabbit hole of investigating this. But this kind of gives you the idea that what Sofia Coppola was going for with the Bob Harris character and the caliber of career that she was striving for in the movie. And when you watch these commercials, you can also see the humor that Coppola tried to infuse into Bill's Bob Harris character in the film. I've been down those YouTube rabbit holes with the uh, overseas commercials. That it's a lot of fun, isn't it? it it's gotta, those celebrities have to hate the fact that YouTube came to be <laughs> because back then they could get paid like a couple million to go to yeah. Japan, do like some wacky commercial, and no one in the U.S. would ever know about it so it wouldn't hurt their career. It was like this like really well-kept secret all through the 80s. And even though Harrison Ford, I'm sure he doesn't care at this point, he probably would look back on those and like scoff, but be like, I made a butt ton of money off of those ads, so whatever. And I think that's pretty much what every actor involved like feels like. We'll have to dig up some of these commercials and put them on the social. I would 100% love to do that. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for that Murray moment. Of course. So before we wrap this episode up, do we have any... Final thoughts on The Fugitive? Or uh, you've got a little fun fact, don't you? Oh, yeah. I love a good um, fake puke scene. It's all, you know, if you can really sell that, it, it works. And when the whole prisoners uh, start to escape off the, what, what sets the whole um, bus crash and train, what sets all of that in motion, there's a guy that does a pretty good, pretty good job um, there of faking like he's having a seizure. And it's a really disgusting combo of milk and Alka-Seltzer. I've never seen anybody foam at the mouth in real life, but I've seen it in movies like so many times. times. Yeah. So I've only seen it once when I was a kid. It was not me. But uh, it wasn't milk and Alka-Seltzer. And that's a disgusting combo. And probably if I had been that actor, I might have vomited, honestly. Well, I have a weird, bizarre, fun fact about The Fugitive. Oh, I can't wait for uh, this. During the... Uh, research that we were doing Mm -hmm. i stumbled upon a guy who he was responsible for doing the transfer to dvd when the move when dvds were first coming out he said that uh, when they were doing the transfer he noticed after the train bus crash harrison ford's like taking cover and in the sequence you can he said that there's a there's an image of a man who's kind of like looking into the camera and he's wearing a hat and they conferred with uh, the director and the cinematographer, and no one knows why this image was there or who this person was. So they're kind of calling it, quote unquote, a ghost. But after the person who was doing the transfer noticed that he digitally removed it for the DVD and for future releases there on out. But if you track down a VHS copy at your local Goodwill of The Fugitive, you can see this image of uh sort of looks like a man in the hat staring into the camera pretty creepy it is and you know there uh, through i mean it might it might have been just like the way the light shifted and stuff but i don't know if you have a copy or you obtain a copy of the vhs maybe we'll uh, it's another thing we can put on social like we'll try to find yeah that image and put it up on instagram or facebook 
see if I can do a zoom in digitally enhance that yeah. VHS. Yeah. You know, actually, I have one more fun fact. I love yours. I guess mine is more earthly bound than something ethereal, like a potential ghost. Okay. Give um, it to me. Well, with your recent trip to Austin and you got to go see uh, where Texas Chainsaw was filmed, uh, which is so cool and I'm really jealous. I loved it. I bet. I know. Where the bus and the train, where the where that happened in The Fugitive, you can actually visit that site. It's in Dillsboro, North Carolina, and uh, it's just, uh, you know, if you're out there, gentle listener, and maybe you're right off uh, Highway 441, it's one mile west, runs right along the Tuskegee River. There's no official pull-off area. I think it might be private property, but you know what, whatever, go during the day. Um, there is a video... Uh, I did some digging. Um, there's a couple videos of people that have been out there on the train and, and the bus. You know, my best friend lives out in, aside from you, Justin, you're my best friend, you know, locally. Um, it's fine. My best so friend. So you have to make the distinctions, <laughs> fine. You're my best male friend. My best friend, Carson, who listens to this podcast. She lives out that way and I, and I might've already mapped it and she doesn't live too far. From where Dillsboro is, I might, if I ever make it out that way, I think I'm going to totally take a detour and visit this site. You absolutely should. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening to our episode on The Fugitive. Next month, we have a movie that we're both really excited about. We talked a lot about the Hughes Brothers Dead Presidents for one of our past episodes, and now we'll be doing their debut feature, Menace to Society, which is a movie that we both really love and appreciate. Definitely a different tone from the fugitive yeah but uh really looking forward to revisiting this movie yeah we'll have to do something a little more cheery for me after uh such a heavy movie might need to pick me up yeah yeah until next time i'm justin johnson and i'm Lindsay reaper thanks so much for listening thanks guys